Right, uh, good evening everybody. Welcome to this, uh, welcome to the LSE and welcome to this Forum for European Philosophy Dialogue on Immortality. Um, there will be, by the way, a book signing opportunity for you at the end. The books are on sale outside and so if at the end of the lecture you want to go out, get the book, come back in and the authors will be happy to sign at that point. So immortality, well certainly these days we're constantly encouraged and called to think about our well-being in terms of the maintenance of good health, as if being alive at all is to be conceived as inseparable in some way from wanting to be alive for as long as possible. And what's at issue primarily there would seem to be our mortality and its finitude and so questions about pushing the limit of that a little bit. It doesn't mean that we're all thinking about immortality. We don't go to the gym with half an eye on being around forever. Uh, but we are quite likely to think about doing what we can do to extend our mortal sojourn in the world uh, for longer. So generally speaking, it would seem to be about mortal longevity rather than immortal eternity. However, I think we should take very seriously the fact that the reigning desire for ever-increasing lifespans has a horizon which is in principle limitless. There's no part of this picture in our culture which is encouraging us to live longer and longer, to be, to be healthy and well for as long as possible. There's no part of that picture of extending longevity which would suppose that there is any finite limit which were it actually to be achieved we'd say well that's it we've done it we've got to that point and no further so nothing is thought of as on the horizon of this cultural ambition uh, to, as a, 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 a final limit in fact a certain limitlessness seems to belong to it in the sense that there's nowhere when one would think we would stop and that seems to me really interesting now, when I was a student, I found all philosophical interest in this sort of question of a, a limitless extension of life or some otherworldly form of uh, survival, post-mortem. That seemed to me something that philosophy really couldn't take on, and whenever it did take on, it seemed to be absolutely miserably full of sort of an, a kind of idle speculation. Now I had, I think, at that time as a student, no principled objection to religious, religious concerns with what is sometimes called the care of the soul, and perhaps even its weird and wonderful talk of uh, eternal persistence in spirit, as spirit. You know, this sort of thought seemed to me uh, bound up with unalloyed faith in a way which was quite appropriate. But as a theoretical question for philosophy, it seemed to me wrong because it made, as a theoretical question, it seemed to make it like the question, make the question of survival like one uh, that concerned our knowledge of something still barely known, but about which we could know more, perhaps like some distant portion of the galaxy or something. And it didn't seem to me like a question like that at all. So at that time, and indeed until very recently, I found satisfaction with philosophers like Heidegger who in their analysis of human finitude, in which death is a great theme, um, 
questions of a beyond death or a kind of limitless life were absolutely held aside, something about which, as it were, nothing should be said, at least by a philosopher. And I'll just give you a very brief uh, example of this from Heidegger's book, Being in Time, which, as I say, is something that I thought, yeah, that's, that's, this is the way to approach the question. So he says, if death is defined as the end of Dasein, that's our being as being in the world, this does not imply any decision whether after death still another being is possible, or whether Dasein lives on or even outlasts itself and is immortal. Our analysis of death remains purely this-worldly, insofar as it interprets death merely in the way in which it enters into any particular life as, as a possibility of its being. Only when death is conceived in its full essence can we have any methodological assurance in even asking what may be after death. Only then we can do so with meaning and justification. Whether such a question is a possible theoretical question at all will not even be decided here. So he sort of closed off questions of an after death, but also uh, closed off questions about a, a life without limit, a, a life without a horizon of death. And yet what I've learned recently is that our life is one in which talk of a life without a horizon of death does enter into our life. Thoughts of immortality have figured and configured our thinking and ways of living. And I'm now convinced that it is a, indeed a proper theme for thinking and utterly unavoidable. Now the sense of the significance of this for me was made vivid a little over a year ago when I heard John Gray discuss it here at the LSE showing how the idea of immortality has belonged centrally, particularly to modern, but also to pre-modern ideas. Now, it wasn't here just a matter of sort of crackpot Victorian obsessions with seances or sciences of the paranormal, but the integration of desires of immortality right inside apparently more mundane or this-worldly concerns. For example, in ways in which, broadly speaking, philosophical construals of history, human history and progress, especially in the socialist tradition, develop and in a certain way secularize Christian ideas of a life which would have vanquished death, a life lived without the horizon of death. And that was an absolute eye-opener for me. So even if one is not given to musings about one's own or others' limitless longevity, it now seems to me that immortality can indeed be a theme for honest thinking. And I'm delighted then to welcome two such honest thinkers tonight, both of whom I think quite rightly have come to see our desires for immortality inside some of the most fundamental dimensions of culture and of our culture. John Gray, who I've already mentioned, is of course the author of The Immortalization Commission, available outside, the <coughs> subtitle The Strange Quest to Cheat Death. And in, as I mentioned in that book, John focuses mainly on the persistence of ideas of immortality in a time after Darwin, in modern times. Stephen Cave's new book, which is Immortality, the quest to live forever and how it drives civilization, also for sale outside afterwards, uh, has an even more ambitious sweep, taking in a passage of time of some 3,000 years of human history, 
seeing in the human creation of cultures of all sorts, including our scientific culture, a fundamental drive to pursue life without end. So, two new thinkers of immortality on new thoughts about immortality. I'm absolutely delighted that they're both here with us tonight. They're going to let you know what they think in their own way and then engage in discussion and then leave time for you uh, for questions and contributions afterwards. Uh, but first, let's just welcome John Gray and Stephen Cave. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much, Simon. I think that was a very informative and useful introduction because I think it is true that until quite recently, philosophers particularly, among others, have thought that thinking about immortality was a necessarily rather undisciplined, unrigorous, silly, passé or superstitious thing. Uh, and I've never thought that myself. And I think one of the uh, many wonderful features of Stephen's book, which is the best book I've read on the subject, um, is that it is written by a philosopher. It's written by someone who trained at Cambridge as a philosopher. And it has an immense clarity in distinguishing between different modes of immortality or different ways in which the impulse to become immortal can express itself or be embodied that I think we can all um, benefit from. So uh, I think it's back into uh, uh, philosophical thinking. It was there in Plato. It was there in David Hume, who kept what immortality might mean. It's uh, run right through, actually, um, Western th and non-Western thought, too. It's only recently that it was put outside of... Um, of, uh, uh, of philosophy, and um, I won't say much. We'll, uh, um, uh, Stephen will uh, speak now, but I just mentioned that um, one very good philosopher, I think one of the best, perhaps the best moral philosopher in the last um, couple of hundred years in Britain, Henry Sidgwick from Cambridge, spent a large part of his life trying to find what he thought of as scientific evidence for the survival of. Um, the human personality of bodily death. And yet, if you read the standard philosophical biographies of him, there are a couple very good books in other respects, you'll find that his interest in this subject is in the footnote, is in a footnote, or two footnotes. And yet, it consumed, by his own account, most of his life, most of his life, most of his active life. And um, before he died, he left various messages. This was a common... Victorian practice in sealed envelopes to be uh, opened uh, uh, after he died um, uh, with messages in that he would, when dead, if he survived, um, uh, communicate to mediums. The, the messages were opened and none of them did come through, in fact, as such. But later on, a little bit later, one did come through, as if I use these terminology kind of in quotes, signed Henry Sidgwick the late Henry Sidgwick, which I found absolutely wonderful because the way it's put, it's very much in Sidgwick's tone of voice. And it's very much, I imagine, what Sidgwick might have felt if he'd been in these circumstances. What the message, the alleged message says is, well, I spent my entire life looking for evidence of human survival of bodily death, and I found it because I have survived. I am here. It's quite amazing. Uh, so I've definitely proved it. However, and this brings out an important feature of the whole subject, which is uh, discussed very illuminatingly in Stephen's book, namely the connection which many people have made between immortality and the meaning of life. They've thought that unless 
we were immortal, our lives would be somehow drained of meaning. Sidgwick's in the afterlife there, according to this message, and he says, well, here I am. He said, but I'm as baffled as I ever was. What am I doing here? And I kind of imagined a vast Cambridge combination room with him going around, how long have you been here? Uh, about 800 human years, God. What are we all waiting for? No one knows. So, uh, so maybe a life of immortality might not be all that meaningful. It, might be, it actually might be quite meaningless compared with our humble mortal life on earth. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Simon, and thank you, John, for those introductions. I actually want to introduce my thinking on this by talking about a sentence from John's excellent book on immortality, a sentence which really sums up um, what I've been trying to communicate in, in, in my thinking on this. And if a sentence is, longing for everlasting life, humans show that they remain the death-defined animal. The death-defined animal. Now, that, for me, is what it is to be mortal. That's what it is to be a mortal, which we, which we are. We are all in, uh, you know, mortals, as nouns. We are mortals. And that's what I want to talk uh, a little bit about now. Was first and foremost, what it means to be a mortal is, and I don't want to sound alarmist here, but it means we're all going to die. Okay? <laughs> we're all going to die! <laughs> now, this is, you, you probably all remember, um, or hopefully you're old enough to remember this uh, uh, section in, in this bit in Dead Poet Society, the film with Robin Williams where he's a teacher and he takes uh, his pupils from the classroom out into the corridor and there are photos of past pupils and he shows uh, his students some photos from pupils from 100 years ago and of course they all look fresh-faced and full of hope and optimism and he says look at them they look just like you and now they're fertilizer for daffodils and before you know it you will be too well this is my robin williams moment okay this is when i've come to tell you that in 50 100 years time this hall will still stand and we'll all be gone we'll be pushing up daisies we'll all be gone okay now this is what it means to be mortal and i'm telling you something that you're probably thinking well i know that well, in a way you do. In a way you know that, as an abstract fact. But the fact is, research shows that just because I've reminded you of that fact, I have already substantially changed your mental state. And I don't just mean you want a stiff drink now. I mean you've been shifted into a, a different mental gear just by being reminded of your mortality. So if you're religious, for example, you'll now be feeling more religious. If you're patriotic, you'll be feeling more patriotic. If you've got something against foreigners, which is very unlikely in an enlightened and liberal institution like this, you'll be feeling more xenophobic. Whatever the core of your worldview is, you will now be clinging to it more tightly and will defend it more aggressively. All because I just reminded you of your mortality. Now, this has been shown in over 400 studies from social psychology. And the experiments work a little bit like this. You take a group of people like this and you divide it into two. And one half you subtly remind about their mortality, somewhat more subtly than I just did. Uh, but say you might get everyone to fill in a personality test, and half will have questions about attitudes to dying and half won't. And then you ask the whole, you're both groups of people, to give their views on certain subjects or they have to do certain tests or what have you. And consistently, the results are that those who have been reminded of their mortality cling much more fiercely to their worldview. So an, an, ex an example, take a group of Christian students 
Um, this was performed in America, and they have to give their opinion on two uh, people, one, one Christian and one Jewish, who are otherwise very similar. And the control group, those who hadn't been reminded of their mortality, assessed these people as being, rightly, very similar. The group of Christian students who had been reminded of their mortality judged the Christian much more positively and the Jew vastly more negatively. And this isn't just about religion. The same thing happened when judges, for example, for whom it was assumed law and order formed a fundamental part of their worldview, were asked, uh, they were divided into, a uh, group of judges were divided into two, and some reminded of their own death, and they were asked then to set a bail for a prostitute. Those reminded of their own mortality set a bail nine times higher than those who hadn't just been reminded of their mortality. And these kind of results repeat themselves in many different spheres of life. And the, the researchers behind these 400 experiments, they were inspired by, uh, by some comments by Sigmund Freud and the work of an American anthropologist called Ernest Becker. And Freud and Ernest Becker believed that civilization is a collection of psychological protection mechanisms against the fear of death. So we tell ourselves these stories or we have certain strategies in order to protect ourselves from this fear. This theory is called terror management theory. It's about managing the fear of, of a terror of death. And so when we're confronted with death, we fire up these stories. They become suddenly more important to us. We activate them in order to protect ourselves um, from the fear of death. Now, uh, the Argentinian writer Borges, Jorge Luis Borges, he described these kind of uh, stories and strategies that we have in order to deny the reality of death. He called them magical barriers that we believe will protect us from the fact of death. And Otto Rank, the psychoanalyst, described them as immortality ideologies. And the chances are that every single one of you here tonight will subscribe to at least one such immortality narrative. It might be that you're religious, you might believe in the resurrection, you might believe in an immortal soul, you might be hoping to create some kind of legacy, whether cultural or biological, you might believe uh, that medicine will deliver us from uh, disease and aging. These kinds of, um, of narrative have so many different kinds of manifestation. And because it's part of what it means to be um, mortal. And here I, I want to return to, to John's words about how we are the death-defined death animal. Now, we, why do we have this terror of death? It seems such an odd thing that, to evolve. But of course, all animals have a kind of, as Schopenhauer put it, a will to live. And we have that too. But only we have the self-awareness to, to realise that this will will one day be thwarted. We have a sophisticated idea of ourselves and of the future such that we are aware of this fact of death. And uh, this is why Yeats said that man has created death. This is what it means to be immortal. So we're in this deeply uncomfortable position as the death-defined animal. On the one hand, on the other side of us are the brutes, if you like, and on the other side, the gods. The brutes, the other animals, they have this will to live, it will be thwarted, but they don't know it. This is why Borges, to quote him again, said that being immortal is easy. All animals are immortal because they are ignorant of death. So on the one hand are the brutes, they are immortal in the sense of being unaware of death, and on the other side of us are the gods who are truly immortal. And in between, that's us mortals. We have the same will to live as the animals, but we must live knowing that this will will one day be thwarted. And that, of course, is terrifying. 
It's, it means the end of all our hopes, all our dreams, all our projects. It's a personal apocalypse, the end of our individual world, the worst thing that can possibly happen. We must live in the consciousness that it will happen, inevitably. And that's scary. And that's why we developed these kind of um, strategies that I talked about, the strategies which are then activated, fired up, when we're reminded of death. Now, I um, believe and I argue in my book that behind an apparent enormous diversity of uh, strategies, and John alluded to this, I believe there are actually only four fundamental kinds, four fundamental stories we tell ourselves about how we can deny death. And I'll introduce them just very, very briefly, um, because I think they're very intuitive. The first one, if you don't want to die, then stay alive. Okay, this is the first kind of immortality story. It might sound implausible, but just don't die. And amazingly, even though it sounds like a very unlikely thing, almost every culture in human history has had some story about an elixir of life or a fountain of youth or something that can deliver us from the reaper. But of course, one thing all these people who have been drinking elixirs and uh, dipping in the fountain have in common is that they're all dead. So it's good to have a backup strategy. <laughs> And this is then the second fundamental form of immortality narrative, and that's resurrection. So staying with the idea that with this physical thing, in this physical world, we have to die, but maybe we can physically rise again and live again. Do what Jesus did, in other words. And we see this narrative cropping up in many different forms uh, throughout history. But for some people, the idea that we might rise from the grave is just too much like a bad zombie movie. I mean, the idea for the physical world is just too unreliable and messy to guarantee Immortality, And so the third kind of immortality narrative that we see throughout history is the belief that we're in fact not physical things at all, but we are immaterial, spiritual things that aren't affected by ageing and disease and death and that automatically live on. And this is the soul story. And most people uh, on earth currently believe that they have one or perhaps better are one and so will automatically survive death. But of course there have always been sceptics about whether some immaterial invisible thing really can uh, carry forward the, the true you, your mind, your essence. And sceptics then hope, uh, set their hopes on the fourth fundamental kind of immortality story, which is legacy. Something of a consolation prize, if you like. Not living on as a physical thing, which the first two roots, first two fundamental forms claim, nor as a spiritual thing, but rather through a kind of echo or resonance that we leave behind in the world. And there are different forms of this story, biological immortality, of course, through children, through genes, through being part of a family or nation or what have you, or cultural legacy, by becoming famous, by having your statues of you carved in, in stone. Now, I believe that all cultures have at least one of these immortality strategies, that all of you will almost certainly have at least one of them. Um, and they exhaust all the possibilities. Those are the ways in which we can become immortal. But what really fascinates me about them is the way these fundamental, very simple stories are retold again and again throughout human history, but using the vocabulary of their time, of their day. So, for example, the first of the four fundamental narratives, uh, which is staying alive, you know, once, I mean, 5,000 years ago, the ancient Egyptians believed they were on the verge of discovering an elixir of life of one kind or another. And... Uh, 2,000 years ago, the ancient Chinese believed the same. Now we believe the same, that medicine is going to deliver us from death. And of course, we use different vocabulary instead of herbs or certain breathing exercises or incantations. We talk about uh, gene therapy and stem cells and nanotech. But the belief has exactly the same form. Or take resurrection, for example. Once people believed that a benevolent God was going to raise them from the grave to live again on an earthly paradise, and now we have ourselves frozen 
in the belief that benevolent scientists will raise us to live again in a techno-utopia that they have created. So I think we ought to be sceptical of stories that claim we are on the verge of discovering the elixir of life or that the kingdom of God is nigh because people have been making these claims for all of recorded history. And yet, to come back to John's words again, as the death-defined animals, it is our fate to continue to tell ourselves these stories. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Stephen. And as uh, Simon said, I'll just make a few brief comments on what um, Stephen has just said, and then we'll uh, have a conversation. Um, I mean, I very much agree with uh, Stephen's account of the different modes in which immortality has been pursued by human beings. And also, I mean, he quoted from me I, the underlying idea that humans are unusual, if you like, or even unique in the world that we're the animal kingdom of which we are a part, in having uh, death as a problem. I mean, death is only a problem for us because we we can't imagine what it's like to be dead. It's inconceivable, but we, we do understand death um, in a way that other animals seem not to do. There might be some evidence of elephants and others responding to uh, the death of their kin or their uh, people of the same species, uh, animals of the same species, but um, there's no evidence that I'm aware of of them devoting large parts of their cultures, because other animals do have cultures, um, uh, to memorials about death, to funerals of those who died, or to developing stories, and maybe they can also, I mean, some have said whales can have song and so on, about how to avoid death. So in this world, at any rate, we seem we're unique in, in that respect. And I guess then the problem which underlies my book is very similar to the one that Stevens uh, book deals with, which is how can we avoid the absurdities that come with pursuing immortality, both practical absurdities and moral absurdities and even conceptual absurdities, and somehow reconcile ourselves to our mortality and find aspects of our mortality that give actually help to give meaning to our lives. How can we live in a way which is meaningful uh, but which fully accepts our mortality? And to give you an example of why I think this is the way we should go about things, why I agree with Stephen here, I recall back in the 80s when I lived in America, I spoke to some uh, people who were involved in the freezing movement that's discussed in, in um, Stephen's book um, and who uh, were even then planning to have themselves frozen, either their entire bodies or in the sort of discount version, just their brains, and uh, with an aim, the aim of being resurrected later on, they then said, I asked them how long this is relevant to what I'm, kind of, to what I'm about to argue, I asked them how long they thought then, and they said maybe 100, 200, 300 years. Uh, science would now, of course, everything has progressed, and so now people talk about it as only 10 or 20 years, we'll have this, or 30 years, but then they said it would be 100 or 200 years or so. 
um, uh, um, science would have progressed to the point at which they could be reanimated and the, and the kind of um, damage to the nervous system and to the brain that being frozen involves could be, could be healed and they could come back as themselves. Now, my aim was, when I talked to them, was not actually to persuade them to um, give up this belief because even then I recognized that people believe what they want to believe, not what there are any grounds for being true. So I wasn't trying to persuade them of any to adopt, but I was just actually curious as to how much they thought about this. And nor did I want to say that the technology wouldn't come along. Uh, we, we don't, I mean, I've lived long enough to see daily life completely transformed by the internet. And before that by um, uh, the photocopier. When I was an undergraduate, we laboriously wrote down in, with pens on paper from books in libraries. Um, so I don't think one can stand back and say that anything's technologically impossible. Even things that we think are inconceivable may turn out to be possible because our conception of what's possible might be limited and might be defective. But what I was interested in when talking to these people was whether they thought through what this meant for society. So I said, okay, 200 years, let's settle on 200 years. By then, let's say there's a technology will have advanced. Yes, yes, they said, we think it will have done. I said, well, but look at the last 200 years. In the last 200 years, you there Americans, you had a catastrophic civil war. You had um, uh, the depression, Great Depression. Thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of firms, like the firms that were then offering this service out in Nevada or Palm Beach or somewhere, have vanished. If you have large-scale economic depressions, um, lots of these firms will go under, and, uh, and that's not even imagining something like another civil war or the dissolution of the United States. After all, we know that all states are mortal. We know that from history, every state there are no there's no state that's been there forever they're born they die they're in that sense they're mortal they turn into something different so if human history in the future is the way it's been in the past surely there'll be such upheaval such transformative uh developments such breakdowns in property rights collapse power failures uh, and world wars etc that it's highly unlikely that you'll be lying there in your deep cryonic slumber with the same firm that you booked into in 1989 two or three hundred years later and they all looked at me completely blankly <laughs> and I what did I conclude from that well what I have told you the narrative what I concluded was they hadn't internalized the mortality of human institutions they'd assumed that new technology could make them immortal because they assumed that the institutions by which they are surrounded will last forever. But that never, ever happens. And if you think this is sort of unreal, think about any European who is, let's say, 70 or 80 in most of the countries of continental Europe. In most of the countries of continental Europe, you would have, if you were that old, you would have lived under a democracy, uh, maybe then Nazism, in half of Europe, communism, then under democracy, and now under certain hybrid types of regime, which no one can really easily classify. Um, technocratic governments and so So you've lived under radically different regimes. You've had different monetary systems. You've had different banking systems. It's completely normal, historically speaking, even in what are considered the most advanced parts of the world, that there be this repeated dissolution of institutional structures. The countries in the world in which this hasn't happened much are very few. Uh, America, but then there was the Civil War. Britain, we had our Civil War earlier. 
Iceland, maybe Switzerland, a handful. And I wouldn't say they're exempt, they've just had a longer reprieve. Uh, they too will melt down. So the idea that the institutions that are around you will last forever is an illusion. And so that leads to absurdity, because the absurdity then is, and this is what later writers of this school, the people I talk to, they talk about the, the freezer-centered society. That's to say, we'll have the whole society will be dominated by tending our freezers, just to make sure that we, you know, they're there when we need them. Uh, well, I think that's a way of not living, not of living. It's a way of wasting your life. Because even if you do come back, even if the institutions do last, you've wasted the life you lived up till then. And um, so that's kind of, I think, this pursuit of immortality leads to absurdities. Now, is there an alternative? Um, and I just illustrated one absurdity. There are many more. Um, well, some I suggested in what Stephen writes. There's what he calls the wisdom tradition, which you find in some poets and various types of mystics which really looks to um, uh, escape death, not by living forever or by finding anything everlasting, but by moving out of time. And some religious writers talk about eternity as not meaning something which is everlasting, which lasts forever, but as something which is not in time. And some poets talk about that as meaning actually living in the present, as far as one can live in the present. In other words, you don't torment yourself with what are, in effect, imaginary possibilities. You know you're going to die, but you don't know when. None of us knows how he or she is going to end. I mean, not only we know, for, we know with certainty that we're going to die, but none of us knows how he or she will end. We just don't know. We can't know. So why torment yourself with that? Why not dwell in the present as far as you can? Make plans for the future that you can think about, but otherwise treat those plans rather lightly and be ready to change them live in the present. And that leads me to one possibility, which is that it, there are some people who try to avoid the death or the fear of death by, so to speak, dying while they're still alive. By which I mean dying as a separate individual self, by identifying themselves with or merging themselves with the present moment. They've already died. They're not the person. Now, of course, you can't maintain this condition all the time if you're sort of uh, building a bridge, you might need to have to think about each of the steps you're taking to construct the bridge. But one way to escape um, the fear of death, which doesn't involve wanting to live forever, is to die while you're still alive. And that's a feature of some poets and some mystics. And in Buddhism, I'm not a Buddhist, but in Buddhism, you could say from one point of view, it's the pursuit of a kind of immortality. But from another point of view, I think it might be seen as the pursuit of mortality. That's to say, the goal is to stop being reborn. And what is then immortal is not you, the person, the soul, because at least in, in Buddhism there's no soul, actually. The whole thing is based on the, the idea that there isn't uh, an individual soul. What's deathless or immortal is something else with which in, you might immer immerse yourself, or alternatively, when the illusory soul is snuffed out, that's what remains. Um, but Buddhists... Um, are in a way counterexample, it seems to me, to the idea which I generally accept that there is this universal overpowering civilizational and human and even animal need for immortality. They don't, don't want to be immortal. They want to be mortal. And if you convince them that they can't be mortal, and damn it, I, I do want to be mortal. That's what I want. I'll keep trying to be mortal. I keep struggling till I am mortal. And I think that's a, 
uh, a goal which some people have had. And a further point I'll make is that I don't think it's even true that people who um, uh, commit suicide or burn down buildings or end their life violently, one way of interpreting that, which is very often true, is that they're pursuing legacy immortality. Burn down a great temple. Her Herostratus, I think, is mentioned in Stephen's book from the ancient world. Um, his name was remembered for 2,000 years. He achieved what he wanted. Um, Herostratus. But there are people who don't want that either. If you've ever read uh, the poem by um, Thomas Hardy, Tessa's Lament, sort of the tragically thwarted life of a woman, in that uh, she says what she wants is not just to die, oh no, she wants something more, she wants to unbe, never to have been. Now that's a tragic thing to want. She wants not only not to cease to be, but never to have been which she might think of as being impossible, but that's what she wants. So she doesn't want to sort of perpetuate herself in any way at all. She wants to vanish from the world entirely. Um, and I think there are people who want that. And that's a very tragic desire, of course. But on the other hand, turn it round, I think there are many people who welcome life, enjoy life, um, love to be alive, but who don't want to perpetuate that life in any of the ways that Stephen talks about. Another, and I think he this is what he, himself, he advocates towards the end of the book, of his wonderful book, which is that we can be life-affirming in the face of death in such a way that although we might want better healthy longevity, I mean, I, I would say that, for example, if I said to you that there was now a pill as, uh, like aspirin, which if you took it, would um, give you 30 years more of healthy life than you'd have otherwise. I would take it, by the way. So I'm not against healthy longevity. I reckon, would there be anybody who wouldn't take it? I think we all would. And people might say, well, terrible problems of overpopulation and difficulty, blah, 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 blah. to hell with that, I'm taking it. I mean, we'd all, <laughs> we'd all I mean, in other words, we'd, we'd all take it. So, um, and I think maybe we'd be right to, we could, maybe confront the problems later. Um, <laughs> it's the way human beings generally operate. Um, and it's not always uh, a, bad, a bad thing. But as to wanting immortality in any of the forms, even legacy immortality, I actually don't think it's necessary uh, for either for human beings in general or even for um, uh, healthy living. And so I'll end by, and by the way, just to go back, something in Stephen's book I just remembered, one of the problems which was not dealt with by these people these, uh, that I talked to in the, in the 80s was, even if something could arise which would, some tenor, which would make us medically immortal, uh, there's an interesting calculation uh, made by someone mentioned in Stephen's book which suggests that on a certain scientific analysis of probabilities, given the possibilities of accidental death and plagues and wars and meltdowns. You couldn't live more than about 6,000 years. I would probably knock a note off that myself, but then I'm famous for pessimism. But, uh, uh, you know, look at the world around you today. How long would you last? 600 years? Yeah, you might, but 6,000? Mm, very dubious. So I would conclude by saying, I think here we might want to sort of add an extra impulse in, into this, which Freud I know he's terribly unpopular now, but he talked about the death instinct. He knew it wasn't a rigorous scientific theory. He called it a myth himself. He said it was a myth. 
Um, but it might be a useful myth. It might be that, along with this overpowering uh, need for immortality uh, and impulse from it that we have uh, as humans, um, we also have something different in us, which could be negative, it could be terribly destructive. We may kill other people or kill ourselves from despair, which is a negative act, but could also be very positive because um, we might, as it were, struggle to live uh, and achieve some way of living which actually isn't burdened by the need for immortality or we, we, where we cope with death or elude the threat and danger of death by living more in the present. Thank you. I'll reply from here again. Thank you. I, I agree very much with everything John said, really. But talking about uh, how we don't really know if we're the only animal that, um, uh, that is aware of our own mortality, we don't really know. There's a wonderful uh, sketch by The Onion. I don't know if you know The Onion. I don't mean the root vegetable. I, I mean the, the satirical magazine and, and website. And they have this spoof where some scientists take a gorilla and teach this gorilla that it's going to die. Right, they sort of show pictures of dead gorillas and sort of, you, like this. <laughs> and this gorilla becomes very depressed. And the researchers are like, yes, we've done it. We've cracked it. We've taught this gorilla that it's going to... But, um... Uh, um I think it's actually been done. Is it? Chimpanzees. It's, it's quite wrong, in my view. But that brings me to the idea of, um, uh, in response to what you said, John, about the burden... Of, mm. of mortality, the burden of being. Mm. And I mean, you're talking about um, for his death instinct and, and the tradition you see in Buddhism and elsewhere where people clearly, uh, the, on the one hand, they seem to be longing for something like immortality. These are part of clear immortality mm. narratives, especially in their folk versions. But in their more sophisticated versions, they seem to be promising the dissolution of the self. Yes. And there seems to be a contradiction. But I think this contradiction arises from the way we think about wanting to live in contrast to immortality, that is to say, we want to, I don't want to die now, I want to live tomorrow, probably next week, etc., etc. And of course, if you keep wanting to live today, tomorrow, and next week, you'll end up living forever. And yet, if someone said to you, do you want to live for eternity, you might find the idea appalling. The idea of, you know, the same thoughts rattling around in your head like a 10p coin in a washing machine. For eternity. It's... It, it, it's we know that we are limited beings and it seems that anything we enjoy doing now is shaped by those limitations and if you take away the most important limitation of all the limit of time it's very easy to imagine that we become uh, very frustrated with ourselves very bored of ourselves and of course just fed up with this burden of having to struggle through life fulfil our dreams make sense of it all you know and so on the one hand we don't want to die but on the other hand there are traditions where people are facing up to this idea this, this burden of, of of being, and you see that in Buddhism, but I, thought, I think you also see it in uh, the two different ideas of the legacy tradition. I, I mentioned there's the biological aspect becoming part of, well, seeing yourself, your legacy as your genes or your children, or being part of something bigger like a family or a clan or a nation or what have you, versus cultural legacy. Because cultural legacy is really all about saying, look at me, look at me, I'm special, I'm worth remembering. You know, this is, uh, this is Achilles deciding on the beach in Troy that he is going to die in order to become the greatest warrior of all time and so be remembered forever. He wanted to be special. That's cultural legacy, carving out your own unique space in the cultural sphere. Whereas 
biological legacy is really exactly the opposite instinct. It's this, uh, this instinct of wanting not to be, not to be seen, to be part of something much bigger, to be part of a much broader tradition or a broader gene pool or to be part of Gaia or the history of the cosmos as a whole. And it, it, sometimes you see the same person pursuing both or the same tradition coexisting, uh, one alongside the other, but they're both very powerful forces. Um, but this brings, but I agree also, John, with what you said about how this idea of the dissolution of the self can actually help us to come to terms with the fact of mortality. I think, I mean, today we, you know, we notoriously live in this very individualistic society, this very self-centered society where the self is really the source of all value. And of course, then for the prospect of the destruction of the self is, is appalling, is all the more terrifying. Um, and as Bertrand Russell said, the more you can break down the walls of the self, and identify yourself with other interests, identify yourself with the present moment rather than thinking about what might happen, etc., the easier it is to face up to uh, mortality. And I, I do think it's possible, even though we seem cursed to repeat these stories again and again in different forms, there have always been people who have managed to step outside of this, to question these narratives and step outside a little. And I think that actually properly understood, it's possible to see mortality as the best of all worlds. So I certainly agree with, um, uh, with Epicurus and Lucretius that death can't harm us. Death is beyond our experience, our experiential horizon. It's not something we can directly experience. And therefore, as Lucretius said, exactly because we are not immortal, we do not need to fear death. If we were immortal, then we would have experiences in the future beyond our bodily death or what have you that might be bad, that might be worth fearing. But we won't have any experiences after death. It's the end. We won't even experience death itself. We might experience dying, but not death itself, because by the time death comes, as Epicurus said, we've gone. So there's no, although it's natural to be afraid of death, it's not rational. So nothing, death can't harm us, and yet it does provide a limit to our lives, which I think helps to give our lives a certain urgency and helps to give them meaning. Okay. Um, could I just actually ask you both one thing that has come up uh, more than once now, and that's the... Uh, the issue of animal cultures. Um, you, if you begin by saying we, as you both wanted to, that we are the death-defined animal, what what are we saying about the brutes in this? What you were calling the brutes here? Because um, if you're right to say that death is beyond experience, so my death, as it were, is not going to be an experience for me. One of the things, the other side of that is, of course, it may well be a, an experience. For somebody else, my death will be an experience for somebody else, and indeed, that's really the only experience of death there is—is is the death of another. And, and, and so, our understanding of death is rooted through that third person, as it were. And animals clearly, you know, show awful sorts of uh, um, traumas in the face of death. Mm -hmm. I mean, not all animals, but you know, there are a lot of animals that do, and, and so. You know, the animals will mourn the the death of, of of another of a human being or of another animal, and and that third person relation to death terribly mm. important, especially because there's no first person experience of death. Mm. And wouldn't you want to conclude then that animals also die? There are also animal cultures of death, and so I'd want to, I'd want I'd want to sort of just try and tease out from both of you what would ultimately be really distinctive about the human to, to talk about it, it as you wanted to, as the death-defined animal. I think I would say that the, what's distinctive about the human culture of death is that the fear of death and the uh, struggle to reconcile ourselves with death 
is the flip side of something which seems to be um, distinctively or peculiarly human, which is the um, propensity to see our lives as a story. That's the humans are narrative animals. I think that is true. And um, we construct our lives. We look back at our lives. We change the narratives as we go along. We have different experiences. We view our lives in different ways and so on. And it might even be the case that now in our rapidly changing world in which we often survive the institutions that we were born in, find ourselves in a different world or the, or the world we have been born in disappears because of technology or some other reason. Might be that our lives look more like a, an anthology of short stories than a classical uh, novel, but we, we, we experience them as narratives. And um, because death is the end of the narrative, for me. I mean, others will tell my life in ways that I can't control, but for me, it's the end. It's the end of the story. And I don't get that, you know, I don't know. I can't, I don't know for sure because. Um, uh, there are many different types of animals, and I don't know if it's been studied, but my, my own experience, I mean, cats, who I, I do know quite well, if, if you try and persuade a cat to do something later, later doesn't enter into the, <laughs> into the, into the conceptual vocabulary of a cat. Eat your, eat your, eat your food later. Looks <laughs> uh, with sort of um, incredulous contempt to the, <laughs> to the extent that it understands anything. There's no later. There's no story of the day unfolding for them. Might have habits, might expect things at certain times, wake you up at certain times, uh, and demand their food. But there doesn't seem to be a narrative. And so we at attempt to, we, we define ourselves by the narratives we tell about ourselves, and death's the end of that narrative. So unless animals, and there may be animals in other, there will be, I think, in other parts of the cosmos, or there even may be, may be some on this planet, I don't know, which have this propensity, this, this deep-seated almost need, I would say, to understand their lives as stories. But there's nothing worse for a human being, I think, hardly anything worse anyway, than to have all the narratives that with which they've told their life collapse on them. If you can tell your life as a tragedy, at least it has the meaning that a tragedy has. If you can tell your life as a as a heroic or even failed struggle, it has a it has a coherence which you can which but if there's nothing there at all, if it if it collapses and in a sense, death isn't the collapse of it, but it is a finality. It is an end to it. That's where it comes from. So that's what I, what I would, uh, uh, the fear of death for most human beings, most of the time, um, when they're not in agony or pain, et cetera, et cetera, is uh, the flip side of um, being a narrative animal. But then they're death-defined because, we're death-defined because we're narrative animals. But then, Stephen, how, how, how does your thesis on these four strategies, which you see as ubiquitous in one form or another, how does that run with the, the narrativity of a, a life that has a, a final limit? I mean, does it mean that the narratives we tend to tell ourselves are fundamentally delusional most of the time because you're trying always to overcome the limit? Yes, exactly. Oh. Mm. That's, that's exactly what I think. I mean, um, yeah, I think we, we, we do. I mean, sometimes, you know, implicitly often we're engaging in products that we can, uh, sorry, projects that we can accomplish within our lifetime. I mean, there is, to some extent, an awareness of our limitations, but there is an, an enormous degree to which we completely ignore those limitations. I mean, for example, in the simple extent to which we just waste time. I mean, to go back to Robin Williams' point about, you know, he was reminding me, uh, children of their own death in order to say, carpe diem, you're going, because you never have this day again. This is something, you know, Heidegger talks about, you quoted Heidegger. I mean, 
living each day authentically means living it in the awareness that you will never live that day again. That's it. Your chance is gone. If you spent it watching daytime TV, well, hello, it's wasted. That's it. <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, I think um, we do delude ourselves uh, into believing in these narratives that extend beyond, you know, three score years and ten and whatever. And, and yet part of your book is about how unbelievably productive that delusion has been because it produces mm. culture. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what would... So it's a sort of ambiguous delusion for you. Mm. Uh, well, it, it, it is ambiguous, and it, you need to take a kind of balance, and, uh, and you have to ask whether it's possible, really, to live without it as well. I mean, I, you know, I think it has been it's one of the great driving forces in, in, in human history, um, but that means, but you know, and, uh, John is a famous pessimist, but human history has by no means all been good. I think often when I, when I, and people take me to be saying it's driving progress, because I say it's driven civilization, as if civilization has only produced good things, and not endless wars and pogroms and, and mm. uh, um, discrimination etc etc so I think it's behind an awful lot of um, the bad things uh, you know the holy wars and the suicide bombers etc etc I mean it might even be that we should be less um, needy in respect of meaning uh -huh. mm. I mean that's to say I mean not that we should wallow in meaninglessness but it, one of the things I think the dangers of being hung up on a, a narrative especially a, a universal narrative just goes back to what you just said um, Stephen, is that if you have a narrative of the development of the world or of human history um, in which um, certain other human beings with their narratives don't play an important role or worse still, play a malign role, if you just get rid of them things will be alright then what you can then have is a, is a terrible situation in which their narratives, their lives are ruined or ended or uh, uh, damaged in, in terrible ways by the need for narrative of other people. So, you know, I don't want to figure in the narrative of someone who gets meaning from killing me. Mm. I'd prefer not to take part in that particular drama. But it's very difficult because, of course, we all define each other. We all, you know, we all have our narratives and we play different roles. In it. So, inevitably, I will be. And that's the fate of being a human being, to be subject, to be at the mercy of other people's narratives, other human beings' narratives. They might define me. You know, if you read what happened in, for example, in, um, I don't know if anybody hears from here, there, but in, I think in Bosnia before the war had the highest degree of intermarriage between different religious and ethnic groups in Europe. And so at that point, people didn't see themselves as locked into these singular ident and opposed identities. Well, in two or three years, they did. So if you said something like, rather like Jewish people in the 30s in Austria and elsewhere in Germany said, well, I'm a European, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm Jewish, but I'm also uh, a European and uh, a German or an Austrian. I've got these lots of different identities. Some said, no, you're not. You're this and only this. So we're going to get rid of you. And that has happened in different forms, happened in the Balkans. And it's a permanent human possibility. And what it reveals, what it means to me, is not that we can rid ourselves of the need for narrative that maybe would be too drastic a therapy. We might end up, uh, though in a sense it's what Lucretius and Epicurus favoured. I mean the trouble with Lucretius, they say, you know, don't engage in romantic love, you'll be disappointed. Um, have sex, but no romantic love. Don't engage in sport, you might lose. Don't engage in, <laughs> don't engage in religion, it's all lies. Um, don't, you know, so what you're left with, you're left with, as it were, the, the pleasures which for these Hedonist philosophers were 
very, very austere and mostly consisted of the absence of pain. And episodic. And episodic. Yeah. You're just left with these sort of episodes. Well, if we could really do that, we can't, fortunately. <laughs> what would the world be like? There'd be no religion, no politics, probably no war. Uh, but there'd be none of the good things either. Because no one would ever labor to produce these, these, these. So we'd have a kind of cultureless world in which there was much less atrocity and, and horror than the world we have now but in which many of the good things, many of the meanings of that Kibbalah would, would, would be gone. So what it means to me is we can't hope for that, and if it was realized, it would be terrible, that kind of world without narrative. But we can maybe be a little more detached, a little more skeptical, a little, more, uh, a little less um, besotted or bewitched by the narratives that we tell ourselves. Because if we can learn to drop a narrative when it becomes burdensome, then we can live on through the destruction of our narratives and find new narratives or make new narratives. In other words, we can find life meaningful. If you read some of the people who've been forced to emigrate from collapsed civilizations, collapsed cultures, cultures which have been devastated, some perish. If you read the novels of Nabokov, or the short stories of Nabokov, a lot of the Russians kind of went under when they had to flee. But others didn't. And they were able to tell themselves new stories and make new lives. So I think the willingness to... Um, to uh, um, hang loose with respect to our narratives, not to in insist and demand meaning at every point so that we get hung up on the meanings of the narratives we've got now. I, I think that, would, that, in a sense, could be therapeutic, even though we can't, um, can't have a world in which there's no narrative at all, and that would be a sterile world. Could I just ask one, one more question before I open it up uh, about the modern conceptions as well, because you know, in a way we tend to think of immortality as belonging to the past and, and yet you brought it back with conceptions of uh, uh, gene passages through time, that would be one biological survival that belongs to a modern narrative and uh, John you talked about people wanting to freeze themselves and things like that, that's sort of modern but uh, are there any sort of uh, other, and I'm particularly interested if there are any sort of political forms of narrative which get caught up in immortality tales is, or, or, or does our politics generally steer clear of, of that sort of narrative Arthur Kirstler in his, one of his volumes of autobiography um, has an account of when he was sort of um, losing interest in communism he was at some meeting of a communist cell and someone was talking about the future of um, uh, society and about communist transport systems. Communist transport systems would be free and they would, they would transport people wherever they wanted and they would work, he said, really ideally. And uh, Kersler, who was a difficult person in many ways, somebody who's an absolute monster actually, but anyway, put that aside, <laughs> he said, well, what about accidents? Deadly silence descended on, on, on the room. Wouldn't there be accidents? Wouldn't people fall off the bus or get run over? No, 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 I wouldn't have. No, no, uh, definitely not. Uh, or if so, so infrequently that no one would notice. Well, the person to whom it would happen would notice. And if it was so infrequent, they'd notice more. So I guess there are those sorts. But nowadays, I mean, uh, right now, the common f commonest form of immortality through human action is technological. And it's not even being frozen and then defrosted later. Uh, it's digital immortality. That's to say the immortality discussed in Stephen's book of uh, whereby some kind of the, the information from your brain or is extracted somehow and then 
projected into cyberspace and in cyberspace you, if that is you, because there are then problems of identity, but you can have different bodies and so on and so on. And if you think this is sort of far-fetched, look up on Amazon and you'll find that one of the um, exponents of this view, Ray Kurzweil, um, it's no longer crank view, it's sort of moved into various aspects of technological culture, has produced a diet book called Transcend, in which he gives the diets, he thinks, will enable you to live long enough to do this. So he says, this diet book, different from other diet books, it's not just to enable you to be thinner and look nicer and live longer, it's to enable you to live forever. Because he's identified the time, he thinks, when the technology will be around, and I think it's if I'm 2043 or 2045, I won't be around anyway, so it doesn't make any difference to me. But, but even to those who um, uh, uh, are uh, around, I don't think it's going to happen. But he thinks, so that's a completely practical, you go on a very, very stringent, extremely stringent diet, hundreds of uh, supplements, continual medical tests, low calorie, because it's been found that if you starve um, rats, poor thing, they live longer. Whether they enjoy that experience, I don't know. But if you, so if, you, if you live like that, if you devote your life you know, unremittingly to that and get to 2043 or 2045, and there hasn't been another global recession, the dollar hasn't disappeared, America's still there, etc., etc., then you can be uploaded uh, and you have what, what he wants well. He can keep it. Yeah. But, uh, Thanks, John. Thanks, John. Actually, that, that, that's another of those lives which have failed to mean anything now, mm. deferring it somewhere else. But now we've got some time, 25 minutes or so, for questions. Now, uh, uh, Stuart, have we got mics? Yes? One there and one there. Is there one up the top and at the top? Okay, let's start towards that. One there and then one there. Yep. <coughs> I guess my question is leading on from this slightly more far-fetched concept of the digital immortality or digital legacy, and I'm, I'm fascinated, especially since over Stephen's head, there's a Twitter hashtag, you know, with the, the tools that are available now, Twitter and Facebook and some of these digital social networks, you know, how are people thinking about their legacies, their digital legacies, when, for example, when one dies, you know, your Facebook page is there for as long as, well, it's up $30 a share, maybe not that long, but for as long as Facebook is around. I'm sort of fascinated and curious by the social network digital legacies that might be, uh, might be going on right now. I think there are two aspects to that, two ways in which people see their immortality hopes through Facebook and Twitter, etc. They're kind of, we can call them the more modest and the more ambitious. The more modest is very much as legacy. Now, the ability to create legacy, cultural legacy of some kind, has throughout history been very closely protected. So, you know, for example, if you, I mean, it was, a, it was a, 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 the right of kings to have portraits made. And if you were to make a, a portrait of yourself or take, you know, the portrait of Queen Elizabeth I in, 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 in vain, so do your own little sketch, you could be boiled alive. So, you know, this is a very closely protected power. And uh, what we've seen, of course, in the digital age is it's become very easy. Now, this has also raised the stakes. You know, just one picture of you won't do anymore. At least a million, all around the world. And even that, I mean, it's not so difficult, you know. So what it takes to become the next Alexander the Great um, is much more than it did in, in his day. Well, he went to extraordinary. I mean, you know, not that it was easy then, but, I mean, but you know, now one portrait's not going to do it. Um, but nonetheless, people find a great deal of satisfaction and consolation in leaving that kind of legacy behind. But that's just the more modest version. The more ambitious version is, is what John was talking about, about 
using all of this information, so all of us live this very, very public lives, leaving this extraordinary resonance in the digital world. And now, people dream of gathering all of this information, all of the tweets and Facebook postings and emails and uh, this phenomenon called life logging, where you walk around with sort of cameras strapped to you, pointing in different directions, microphones attached and all of that. So your entire life, everything about you is recorded. And the idea is that then all of this information can be gathered together and then animated with some very clever artificial intelligence uh, software and then made into something very much like a person. A person who speaks in very short sentences of 140 characters or less, of course. But, and uh, even now, there are services that offer this, and uh, they're sort of very primitive and rather repetitive. I mean, you know, someone now formed from my tweets would not make a very good dinner party yet. Like, you know, the conversation would get a bit done. But already now, this service exists, and you know, the, the optimists believe that you know, exponential increase of digital uh, technology, processing power, and all of that, then you know, it's inevitable. Okay, let's carry on if we can. We can. There's one there, then we'll do one there, and then is anybody up at the top that I haven't seen? One, one there. So uh, there, there, and then up at the top. Uh, Dan Sofa. Uh, I uh, was listening to a talk by Jonathan Haidt a while ago, coming from a very different point of view, but it, he, he's got an interesting thesis, which I think is shared by other people, which is that uh, you... The societies that are the strongest, in a way, are those that require sacrifice, and they require a lot of meaning. I mean, he talks about sacrament. Um, and I just wonder how that sits with the idea of wearing our beliefs lightly. Very good. Thank, thank you. We'd like to take that. I think there is a contention. I think there is a real tension. But on the other hand, I would say, historically speaking, the societies in which um, people have been ready to make enormous sacrifices have not always... Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. I don't know if it's on now. Yeah, it is. Is it on? Yeah. I would... Um, let me repeat what I said then. Um, I think there is a tension between uh, holding your beliefs lightly and um, societies in which people are ready to sacrifice themselves for some larger meaning and thereby make the society stronger. I think that there is a tension between that. It's absolutely true. But on the other hand, I also think that many societies, I would even say most, in which this capacity for sacrifice is very strong and widely cultivated and taught have been pretty lousy societies. I mean, in the 20th century, think of the people who've gone to their deaths knowing even that they were going to die, either forever if they were non-believers in any religion or um, uh, as human beings, in the pursuit of terrible goals. So I don't think it makes sense to say um, because a strong society inculcates a capacity for sacrifice which may be incompatible with holding your beliefs and meanings lightly, that's what we should do. Because if we do do it, it depends what the society is like. If the society is racist or bigoted or theocratic or represses its own minorities or majorities, as in the case of women, it won't be a good result. I mean, think of all the minorities throughout history and majorities who've been taught to sacrifice themselves and to find meaning in self-sacrifice when actually what they've been taught to do serves just a system in which a few people have better lives. So that's what I think hate, Jonathan Haidt misses out. 
Great, thank you. Uh, one here, and then we're going upstairs. So in the in in the middle, the hardest to get to possible. He stood up for you. It's going round anyway. <laughs> now, why did I choose you? Rupert Reed, um, I want to follow up the line of questioning towards um, Stephen that um, I think John started. So. I totally agree with you. I agree with the panel that um, denial is a huge force in human society, although I would say that denial often includes a kind of acceptance or masks a kind of acceptance, and that should be taken into account. But don't we have to be very careful in interpreting these um, social psychology um, experiments not to conclude that reminding someone of the fact that they will die always leads to this kind of um, problematic result that you suggested, Stephen. Can't an awareness of death often be salutary and more reflection on death in particular often be uh, a good thing in that it gives, gives, gets us to understand better what's important in our lives? And mightn't that explain, actually, a great deal of the results in that people become more convinced of, of what they are and who they are as a person because they're reminded of what's important. They're no longer thinking just about the next reality TV show or what they've got to get to when they leave the, uh, leave the room at the end of the day to, uh, when, they, when they go shopping or, or whatever. So shouldn't we fully acknowledge that? And if we did so, wouldn't that also lead us to draw a different conclusion about two of your um, types of, of the four which you suggested were forms of terror management about death, i.e. legacy and spiritual survival. Can't legacy often be precisely this? So the question is, is legacy thinking legacy thinking for the sake of it, or is legacy thinking legacy thinking from the point of view of, well, I want to actually do something with my life. And in that sense, I want to leave something behind. I want to have had some kind of impact. And in terms of spiritual survival, as John already suggested, in terms of some forms of mysticism and so on, can't it again be thinking about, well, I want to actually um, be part of uh, some greater something that is of some importance, rather than my mortal life having been completely meaningless and pointless. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I think that's an excellent question. I mean, to start with the idea of um, the usefulness, or the, the value of death reminders, of the memento mori. I mean, there is a great tradition of people actively seeking to remind themselves of death. Now, of course, if death, if that was purely uh, scary, that wouldn't make any sense. Now, but from the terror management point of view, of course, it does make sense because what you do if you remind yourself of death is activate this core part of your belief. So, for example, I mean, if you're a Christian monk and you have, you know, a, a, one of uh, Holbein's Totentanz, you know, Don's Macabre pictures, or, or a skull on your desk, or some other reminder of of death, it's going to uh, uh, strengthen your faith, which, of course, was its intention. I mean, you know, what do we see when we go into a church? We see, of course, Christ being crucified. Now, the most significant event in Christianity is him rising from the grave, but that is not what we see when we go into, into a church. We don't see this, this, we don't have an image of new life, we have an image of death. And the effect of that image of death is to make very clear to people, to remind people just what they're doing there in the first place. And so I think it's true for all traditions that reminders of death can be very useful. I mean, just look at recent politics of the last 10 years, the way images of the Twin Towers have been, uh, been destroyed, the threat of terrorism has been used to support certain uh, political 
movement. John has written about in, you know, in the war on terror, sort of the war on this existential threat that was declared, and, and um, uh, support was gathered by these continuous reminders to people that, look, you might die, a plane might land on your head. Um, so for all political and religious systems, it's useful to remind people of death. But I agree also that, you know, from, to go back to Robin Williams, that, that if you have... If you don't have any of these, if you, if you do without immortality narratives, if you've gotten to the point where you think no mortality can be a good thing, it can cause us to value and appreciate the time that we have, then of course you do want to be thinking about death on a, on, on a regular basis. I mean, uh, uh, you know, there are, like the Stoics, um, who, you know, would get up in the morning and meditate on death for an hour or so in order to ensure that they made the very best out of uh, their day. So I certainly... I mean, so I think, you know, I'm all for bringing awareness of death into life, it being an undeniable fact of life, in order to um, uh, strengthen, you know, the core of the worldview. No, but part of what he's saying, I don't, if you don't mind, I won't take up the mystical side, but the legacy side, part, part of that uh, is, seems absolutely non-delusional. I mean, you've both written these books, <laughs> and quite one of the features of them is not that I want to be known, I want to be famous... It, it's some these things will survive you in the sense that they continue to be readable and to function even if you've died and um, that will that will have been part presumably of the Im impetus for you to get it written yeah well and I believe very much that certain aspects of legacy seeking can make sense as wanting to be part of something meaningful something broader I mean if you're you know doing scientific research and happen to win a Nobel Prize but what motivated you was love of science whatever fine if you're going on Britain gets talent got, Britain's got talent you know it's more dubious that you want to be part of something big and meaningful but I mean if, if you look at the uh, the, the heroes who within our culture represent this tradition most clearly such as Achilles, for example. I mean, if you see Western civilization is stemming largely from two traditions, the Judeo-Christian with its very explicit immortality narratives, and from the Greek tradition, um, and, and you know, Homer, of course, uh, the most influential writer in the Greek tradition. Um, the Iliad is all about Achilles sitting there on the beach, and he knew, because it had been prophesied by his mum, who was a goddess, he knew that if he stayed and fought at Troy, he would die and therefore lose all chance of leading a happy, normal, meaningful life as a king of a minor kingdom, but he would win eternal fame. And, you know, there's no, he doesn't romanticise what that means. He knows it involves bloodshed. I mean, Homer's very clear about this. It involves him hacking down innocent people. I mean, innocent, I mean, they're soldiers, but they're just normal people with families, you know. There's, I think there's an Austin Powers a moment where, uh, where Austin Powers is shooting all of these baddies, and then you see sort of the baddies' family, and there's an image of him going off to work. Homer is full of that. You know, there's masses of pathos about the people Achilles is hacking down are normal people who don't really want to be there. And this is not portrayed as being part of something big and meaningful. What Achilles, you know, one of the great heroes of our civilization, is doing is ruthlessly sacrificing his life and that of others purely for legacy. Well, I'm not sure about this distinction between eternal fame and writing a book, but we're going to go on. Hello, <clears throat> Garrett Smith. I um, would like to put the cat amongst the pigeons a little because it's been very consensual. Uh, um, I, and I forgive me because I, I see you. At, I'm as an apologist for death. Really, um, I'm trying to make something, you know, a virtue of necessity, at least, good thing, I suppose. But a, a weakness of both Britain today and for a long time in parts of the world is this failure to reach out for anything that's new. And it's like I, I mean, I'm a middle-class ponce too. 
But one of the things that middle-class ponces do is sit around laughing at, mocking at things that they don't, that's new, that, they, that isn't quite, people that don't quite agree with them and that kind of thing. Um, I, I, the death-defined animal is, doesn't really make sense because as you've discussed, some animals do seem, the other great apes, I say other great apes, do appear to uh, understand death to some extent. And clearly there are no gods, so that's neither here nor there. Um, <clears throat> Which doesn't say that undermines it slightly, but also, uh, I, I can't remember the year. But the film, the year the film Rain Man came out, I understand that Qantas, the airline, had never crashed because it's a famous line from the film. Um, I, the, the, we're not. I don't see how we, we're defined by death, by the fact that we haven't yet died, in the same way that Qantas was not the airline defined by the flaming plunge of thirty thousand feet because it hadn't crashed yet. Um, okay, no, this is good. So not, the point is not that we, we're not going to die, but that we make, they're making too much of death as a phenomenon to understand the significance of our lives. All right. um, no, I didn't think that's what he was saying. No, he was saying that from the fact that everyone's died up till now. Sorry, from the fact no, that everyone's well, died. Well, I'm saying, I, I don't, look, I, I mean, I, my, car, my, my car is not the breakdown-defined vehicle, right? Because it hasn't broken down. No. It, you know, it's, it's, I remember um, um, the, the, the wonderful theatre director that studies as a doctor and was in um, Beyond the Fringe, Miller, Jonathan Miller, doing a history of disbelief. And he ref didn't like being called an atheist because he didn't like being defined negatively by someone else's value. Yeah. And it's kind of like that. He's not, he said, I don't believe in witches. That doesn't make me an ahexist. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And um, I'd also like to come on, on the oh, subject hang of... On, hang on, I think the first bit's good enough, because otherwise... Well, well, well the just two... Long, just long, long, long the, 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 defi the definition, the on, on the subject of flying, this was something that people wanted to do since the beginning of time as well. Now, one day, just because something isn't possible now doesn't mean one day that's not going to be... There will be that pill that makes you give you another 30 years of life. Because just because it, we've wanted it for a very long time doesn't mean it's not going to happen. Um, because now we have flying and it's so routine that we just get bored to tears watching Boris talk about new bloody airport on the television. Um, and, and finally, can I say that, that, that um, the, the, the people that have themselves frozen are clearly quite funny, um, laughable uh, people. Um, but you do seem to have the information wrong on a lot of that stuff because the, if, say, 50 to 100 years is what is necessary, there are many currencies there are many institutions, there are many countries that have got, there are many people that have lived longer than 100 years. Um, so I, that really doesn't seem that big a problem, just simply because some things haven't. I think people know that it isn't a perfect thing. Um, I mean, look, look, for example, the drachma was around for a very long time, and it looks like it may be coming back any day now. Okay, hold on um, there. So, so in conclusion, I, what I don't really need you to answer, but I'd love to know yeah. who, your, who your literary agents are. Because I want, I want to join you on that kind of thing, because I disagree with you on so much of it, okay, that your agents you. might make a few bobs doing a tour or something. Thank you. <laughs> Cheers. Thank you for being so patient. <laughs> Quickly. Well, <laughs> I will be more brief. Um, one of the points I was making is that what's unusual about the present time not unique, is that so many people live longer than the institutions around them. Sorry. One of the things that, I'm, um, that I wanted to emphasize was that 
one of the things that's interesting about the present time is that we live longer than many of the institutions around us. So I'm not denying that we can live a long time. Obviously, many people do survive different money systems of money and so on. Very few of these other institutions have lasted more than a few hundred years. None, I would say, actually. But, uh, but as to whether this is something it's about new, I mean, one writer I think is worth reading on this is very old and um, is Seneca, the Roman Stoic, who in his letters uh, um, discusses the way in which an awareness of death and its inevitability helps to um, make good use of the life you have before you. And uh, he, you know, it, the, he thinks, to put it in the modern language, um, uh, awareness of mortality is the best system of time management you're ever going to get. Because you'll, if you take it seriously, you won't be permanently time pressured because you'll stop doing the things you really don't find meaningful. Okay. So I think that's a very, you know, I think Seneca's not a, an anxious bourgeois in early 20th century. He was a, and he died by his own hand, although not entirely by his own will. Thanks very much. We've got a question down here and uh, then there at the back, but here first. Thank you. I was interested in what you said, John, about dying while you're still alive and um, this desire to, um, for the dissolution of the self and um, a flirtation with oblivion. And I think that there is a, a desire, I think, a flirtation with death and, and danger and, and going to extremes to kind of experience things that are, you know, near-death experiences. But the way you described it was, you know, some people have this approach, some people have that approach, whereas, Stephen, you seem to say that these qualities are both inherent in people, that we at once have a desire for immortality but also for annihilation and, and for oblivion and I wanted to um, perhaps see if you could elaborate on that and see what the interaction is between those two desires and which one you feel is more prevalent Well Freud believed that we have both instincts but I think I don't think they're in a balance, I mean they're in a tension and, mm. and I think in different individuals it varies enormously as to which we're not, it's like uh, it could be seen as the difference between extroverts and introverts, we're all somewhere on this spectrum um, it's difficult to talk about one winning out because when we when we look at, at human nature and try to describe it, on a, you know, um, the terms we use tend to be expressing the balance that we see. So, you know, when talking about the fact that there are some people who feel more strongly that there's uh, oh, of course, of course, change over the course of a of a life as well. Um, as it seems, as people get well, when people are young, they have a much stronger um, urge to define themselves as individuals, perhaps vis-à-vis -vis their parents or, or their peers or what have you. And this is, of course, very much this cultural aspect, um, raising yourself above the others. And as they get older, at least if they get wiser, you know, as Bertrand Russell, when he wrote this essay on ageing at the age of four, I don't know, he lived forever, didn't he? Uh, nearly. <laughs> um, exactly. exactly. <laughs> he wrote this essay in his, in his 90s about... Um, the dissolution of the self, about breaking down the walls of the self. But he associated this very much with wisdom that we arrive at later in life. So perhaps something we ought to aspire to. Okay, good. Yep, question here, and then one down here. Hi, I wondered what the panel thought about the idea that um, the concern or the terror about um, death is not about if, but when, and if we in fact knew exactly when we were going to die, you know, to the, to the minute or the hour, how that would change our view on our own mortality question well the condemned person does know that the person in the cell 
does know that. And back to someone I mentioned earlier, if you want to read how that affected him, Kersler was sentenced to death after being captured in the Spanish Civil War by the fascist forces. And if you read his book, The Arrow and the Blue, he describes an experience which I'm sure really happened, I don't think he made it up, in which he believed he would be executed very soon, maybe the next morning, and he had what he described as a mystical experience during the, um, during the night, which changed the whole of the rest of his life. So it might be the case that some people, I mean, I just, I don't think I agree with Stephen, people differ too much to say, I mean, you know, I might spend the whole night paralyzed by fear, but he had this mystical experience, and it was an experience in which he said that his own personality, the fact that he said he was certain then that he would be executed the next morning, he wasn't, he was reprieved because there was a last minute prisoner swap with, 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 uh, because he had cancer and Parkinson's. That's why. Well, I mean, I gave that an example because there are very few examples I can think of realistically in the real world. I mean, that's a real world example in which we do know or believe we know. And it turned out he was wrong, actually, but he was saved. But normally we don't know when we, and can't know, when we're going to die. If we perform a thought experiment, we say, what if we did know? I'm just not sure that there would be any generalizable response of all human beings. I think some people would be invigorated by it. Some people would be paralyzed by it. Some people would have mystical experiences. Other people would go and get drunk. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure, actually, it would make any general difference. OK, we've got a last question. I'm afraid I'm running out of time. Hi. Um, thank you both for your speeches. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think about how immortality relates to solipsism. Because I think... Solipsism. Sorry, I, I think that solipsism is quite instinctive, that we, we all slightly think that the world exists because we perceive it, and, and that when we die, it's going to stop. Nothing will outlive us. Um, and so perhaps, whilst we in some ways desire immortality, we, we kind of see time in the modernist sense of going along in this teleological path upwards, but we all seem to have at the back of our minds that when we stop, it will stop. So we, there are lots of kind of political worldviews that, that posit us being at the end of time. So either you're Fukuyama or you're Marx and you're on the brink of the revolution that's going to take you to the end of time or Judgment Day is coming in 2012 which is you know conveniently early but m maybe we're also terrified by the idea that when we stop everything will keep going. Like I don't want to talk about like 3050. That seems scarily long in the future. Okay, thank you. I think some extent, uh, I, I agree with solipsism as a natural instinct and I think it, uh, but also it seems um, it's, it seems to us an outrage that, that the world might go on without us. You know, this, is, this is part of why we might want to deny that fact, why we might want to think we're, we live at the end of time. And of course it's part of our desire for permanence, the permanence of the self as well. We want to believe that we are in a time where now everything is going to be sorted out once and for all. I mean, of course what Fukuyama believed in is what Jesus believed too. You know, we are on the verge of sorting it all out once and for all and then, and then you know, the world will be as it should be and I'm going to be a part of that and be a part of that forever. And of course the idea that the world might actually carry on and keep changing and everything that we've done might become meaningless or irrelevant and I'm going to disappear from it is, 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 is of course terrifying. But there are um, traditions that Im embrace impermanence and try to reconcile mm. us to that. You know, there's wonderful Buddhist sand sculptures which are enormously elaborate mm. and the second they're complete they're brushed to one side in order to get us used to this idea. That, um, but I agree solipsism is a, real, is a problem that partly leads to 
these immortality delusions. And again, along with, well, they're talking again, this idea of dissolving the self, part of that is accepting the reality of other people. Yeah. And identifying with their concerns and broader concerns that might well go on after, after work on. And if we do that, our own self will be less important. Your turn. Um, oh, 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 all right, John, go on. Say, say Just very briefly. Um, <laughs> dissolving the self doesn't mean oblivion, like the oblivion of drunkenness or some drugs or um, taking tremendous risks in extreme sports. Some of the people who've tried to dissolve the self have spent decades meditating. And what they get at the end of it is an experience, if you read some of their poetry and so on, what is this experience of a, a flower? They see a flower to them for the first time because until that point it's been clouded, their vision of the flower, by worries about the future and narratives about the past and so on. So um, I think that is a, I mean, th there is a, a long, 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 I would say, human tradition, perhaps coterminous with humans as a species, uh, or at any rate very, very common in many different cultures. So we can talk about it as being universally human. A universally, not that all human beings have it, or, but that human beings in all cultures have, that we know about have tended to it or tried to practice it, in which um, being free of the self doesn't mean a kind of non-entity. It means being present simply in the moment as it is with as little um, uh, 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 um, anxiety about the future and the past as is humanly practicable. And I think that's a form of immortality or at least of freedom from death that humans have always sought uh, and is, is, is still worth, worth considering. It's been very nice, actually, it was very nice hearing you wanting to hear more from our speakers, and I'm also incredibly grateful to all of you tonight, because in, in, to return to the sacrifice theme, in one way or another, you will have sacrificed other things that you could have been doing to come along and hear our speakers tonight, and the really great thing is that nobody died, or at least not <laughs> <in the room. laughs> So uh, we can't thank them for that, but they, we can thank them for a very, very stimulating hour and a half. Thank you very much.